This podcast was proudly brought to you by the Australasian College of Nutritional and Environmental Medicine. ACNEM is a non-profit medical college offering postgraduate training and education for doctors and other graduate healthcare professionals. FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us in the studio today is Amy Skilton. She's a qualified naturopath, nutritionist, medical herbalist and aesthetician. She's been in a clinical practice for more than 17 years and worked concurrently for the Bioceuticals technical team for 14 years as a presenter, educator and writer. She specialises in several areas of integrative medicine, including women's health and hormones, natural fertility and healthy child development, gut restoration, as well as her favourite subject, skin health. Author of the book, Clear Skin Secrets, Amy's truly a holistic skin specialist who helps women and men struggling with acne achieve healthy, clear, beautiful skin naturally. Amy is the founder of whatthenaturopathsaid.com and theclearskincoach.com. You can also connect with her on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Welcome warmly back to FX Medicine, Amy. Thank you, Andrew. Now we're going to be discussing something which I've got to say I know nothing about. Transdermal nutrient absorption. Now, my experience of drug absorption is a little bit humorous. In the olden days, um, we didn't have these uh, set dose patches that we have nowadays for cardiac, certain cardiac drugs. In the olden days in ICU, we used to have people on nitrobid ointment, which was basically you squeezed out a toothpaste length on a bit of grease paper, like baking paper, and it had a ruler. So the doctor used to write nitrobid ointment, 1.5 centimetres. Inevitably, what would happen is that you'd get a little bit of nitrobid ointment on my skin. And then, of course, I was a smoker in those days. And this is in Wagga Wagga in winter. So we'd go outside and have a cigarette in the cold and almost drop <laughs> from the vasodilatory effects <laughs> of nitrobid ointment. So I'm going to gather that what you're going to be talking about today is just a little bit different. Mm, fractionally. <laughs> Let's talk about that. I have to say it seems weird. Tell me more about this. So in terms of transdermal absorption, there are there's a lot sort of out in the ether, if you like, around how effective it is. If you look at the FDA in terms of transdermal absorption of anything, uh, their belief system is that it's negligible, which really does fly in the face of what we understand as far as drug delivery goes. And then on the other side of the coin, you also have uh, well meaning and well-intentioned natural um, skincare and natural health proponents suggesting that anything you put on your skin is you absorb up to 65% of it and in under 30 seconds you'll find it circulating in your bloodstream. And where the truth lies, it actually really depends on a lot of factors but is most certainly somewhere in between. Mm. So first of all, I want to make the distinction between um, 
penetration and absorption. So when it comes to the topical application of anything, you can enhance its ability to penetrate the skin whereby it makes it to the deeper layers of the skin, meaning it overcomes the stratum corneum, which, yeah, which is, is that top barrier. layer. Yeah, that's the primary part of the barrier. Then you've got absorption whereby whatever... Um, active ingredients you're trying to deliver to the body, whether that's medication or whether that's a nutrient or whether that's a herbal medicine, um, actually makes it through to the bloodstream and to distal sites, uh, which is an entirely different thing. Unfortunately, those two terms are often used interchangeably, uh, but they are not interchangeable in terms of what they really mean. So Transdermal delivery systems, as you've already mentioned, have been used for some time for various drugs, including um, hormones like estradiol and testosterone, uh, local anesthetic like lidocaine, as well as contraception, um, and in certain cases using um, methods that enhance delivery, like ultrasonic um, for analgesia as well. So the biggest challenge we have, regardless of what active you're trying to deliver, is getting past the stratum corneum, mm. which is like a cement layer that provides almost the entire barrier function of the skin. And so getting through that is is the first challenge. However, as you go through the different layers of the skin into the dermal epidermal junction, there are um, areas which are more conducive to the diffusion of hydrophobic um, or lipophilic ingredients, yep. and then it actually alternates. And so you've got to consider the delivery vehicle as well as many other um, factors in order to achieve what you want to achieve. And I guess that's really the question a practitioner has to ask themselves. A, what are you trying to achieve? And B, why are you doing it this way? So when it comes to skin penetration, if you're trying to treat local skin conditions, that's all you need. Um, and in that case, you may not have to be um, so concerned with the full um, absorption rate. Although when it comes to things like vitamin A, you probably want to be mindful of the absorption if you were, say, using topical retinoids on a pregnant woman for example. But it'd be very hard to get to the levels of, you know, we're now using retinol equivalents. Yes. It'd be very hard to get to that, uh, what is it, um, 8,000, no, 10,000 IU at any stage of pregnancy, regardless of vitamin A status. That mm -hmm. was the WHO working group on vitamin A. Yes. It'd be very hard to get to that level from topical delivery, wouldn't it? It would, although it does, does depend on many factors. Um, it appears at this stage, if you look at studies based on tretinoin um, with regards to liposomal delivery and topical application in acne vulgaris patients, it doesn't seem to raise the serum levels enough to be of concern. However, we do have to consider many factors. And in the case of, say, zinc deficiency or poor liver function or perhaps extensive vitamin A supplementation preconception, it would be something just to be mindful of. Mm. Mm. I wonder if there's a, a um, pregnancy warning on, now what's it called, Stevia A, I think it is, is the trade name. And it's a, a retinoid cream for acne. Yes, there are on on 
as my as I understand it from what I've seen. I know about isotretinoin, like Roaccutane sure. or Accutane overseas. Yes. Um, I get that. That's a black box warning for mm-hmm. pregnancy. Yes. Even Stevia topical, A, topical. E- topical retinoids, yes, do have a warning. That's okay. not to say that they're contraindicated, but it is something that needs to be professionally managed. I think it would rather be a litigious issue rather yes. than a real issue. But anyway. Definitely. <laughs> and also it depends on where you're using it and why. So for example, um, the site of application on the body does determine, um, amongst other factors, how much absorption actually occurs. So if you were to, if you were to apply something to the forearm, the average um, absorption of that particular compound is around eight and a half percent. So, and that, what I mean by that is if you were to deliver a particular dose to the skin surface, around eight and a half percent of those actors will make it all the way through to the bloodstream, assuming the delivery methodology um, has been considered Mm. and other factors are all sort of normalized. However, if it was to be applied to the scrotum, the skin on the scrotum has a hundred percent absorption. And this is why for certain topically applied drugs, the recommendation is on the inner thigh or the inner upper arm because the skin tends to be thinner than on the outer um, edges of the limbs that are more exposed to the sun and consequently thicker. Now, that's really interesting you say that because I do remember an agricultural paper being circulated with regards to percentage of absorption sites about various, around various areas of the bodies, like they especially looked at eyes. They did mention scrotum and they mentioned other sites of the body with regards to pesticides and herbicides mm. being absorbed. So mm. obviously these things or certain things can be absorbed. Mm. I guess not all. And, you know, I guess one of the, the issues floating around in my mind is, um, We're obviously not talking about general nutrition. We're not talking about feeding the body through the skin. That's Mm. absurd. Mm. But just how real is this? And and indeed, what sort of nutrients would you want to be absorbed rather than Mm. through the normal route? Mm. Why? Why bother? Well, generally speaking, certainly in the realm of complementary medicine, for the most part, topical application is going to be for the purposes of a local effect. Yeah. So um, it's less so about attempting to deliver nutrients in a way other than that which we're normally accustomed to, which is gastrointestinally. However, if there are issues with high first-pass metabolism in terms of um, medications, whether that's herbal or pharmaceutical, or there are issues with gastrointestinal sensitivities, uh, inflammation, um, liver issues, and even renal issues, topical delivery can in some cases be desirable. And to give you one, I suppose, practical example of that, I have a patient with SIBO, which we are on the way to eradicating. However, in the height of her condition, she was unable to consume fiber and any nutraceutical supplements just left her in gastrointestinal distress. And particularly out of all of the nutrients her body was crying out for, she desperately needed magnesium. And up until that point, I had only ever successfully recommended oral delivery of magnesium using highly bioavailable form of amino acid chelate and not had any issues with patients experiencing gastrointestinal distress. Unfortunately, even though I was using in this case one of the best forms of magnesium you can give, she still could not 
tolerate it and yet was experiencing many of the symptoms we know um, our bodies will experience when our magnesium levels are low. So in this case, she began using a magnesium oil instead. And there is evidence to show that using topical magnesium can raise serum levels of magnesium as well. You know, you said a couple of interesting things earlier on there. And one of them was regarding first pass metabolism of the liver and also trying to avoid side effects like gastrointestinal side effects of certain pharmaceuticals. What factors will affect absorption of these nutrients? I think there's a huge um, area of exploration here regarding the topical application of anything we put on our body, quite Mm. frankly, even seemingly benign chemicals generally regarded as safe as well as nutrients and, of course, medications. But what makes it tricky is uh, several fold. Firstly, when it comes to the study of toxicology, we know for the most part toxicology examines one chemical or one agent at a time and doesn't account for bioindividuality and in addition to that overlooks the synergism of combining multiple nutrients or chemicals for argument's sake. But Really, to give you an overview of the factors that influence the bioavailability and the absorbability of anything applied to the skin, and they really are, uh, it's quite a lengthy list actually. First of all, how hydrated the skin is affects the absorption, and this is both internally and externally. So obviously healthy plump cells are a lot more um, able to respond to anything applied to them. However, water on the skin also softens some of that mortar between the bricks of the corneocytes, allowing better penetration of the chemical or the nutrient. Um, So anytime the skin is dehydrated, the absorption of anything applied to it will be slowed down, and particularly via the passive diffusion um, pathway, which we'll talk about a little bit more uh, in detail in a moment. The temperature of the skin, um, logically, as you can probably imagine, the warmer it is, um, the better the circulation is to um, the surface of the skin, the easier it is for anything to cross over and, and be absorbed. Skin condition, of course, um, if there's any injury or um, the the skin barrier is compromised in any way, that gives the um, agent direct pathway straight into the deeper layers. And this can be used uh, to our advantage in the case of microdermabrasion or microneedling when we're trying to um, heal the skin with, say, something like a vitamin C serum. Um, I've touched on regional variability already, which is where certain um, areas of the skin uh, provide really a a greater barrier to penetration. So, for example, um, there are certain areas that can absorb uh, nutrients or medicines more readily. Uh, We touched on the scrotum. Certainly the underarm is another one um, and, and anywhere that the skin is a bit thinner. Of course, individual variability plays into it as well, Uh, but then it comes down to what are the physical and chemical properties of the compound? What is the molecular weight? What is its polarity? Um, The skin prefers lipophilic compounds, so it is easier to get fat-soluble agents and fat-soluble vitamins across than it is water-soluble. But things like even carbon number and volatility play a role. The pH of the solution in which it is delivered is also key, as is the fact that it's delivered in a solution. 
A diluted compound is often more um, more able to penetrate the skin than if it is applied neat. And that's because the water actually softens the stratum corneum, allowing greater diffusion. So that's quite an interesting one because mm. that is slightly counterintuitive. You'd think applying a, a, you know, a stronger, more concentrated version of the product is a better idea. But the pH also uh, affects the ability of the agent to cross the skin and logically at the more extreme ends of acidity or alkalinity where it disrupts the hydrolipid film allows for better diffusion across the skin. But beyond that, we can also employ um, other methodologies which will enhance delivery, and that includes the vehicle in which the agent is delivered in. And we'll talk about liposomes shortly, but anything that allows it to be delivered across those layers more readily is going to be supportive. And you can also use accelerants as well. And outside of, say, medical or clinical setting, this might be as simple as using a gentle glycolic acid peel on the face before applying, say, a serum to the skin for treatment, or even um, alcohol disturbs the hydrolipid film of the skin. You can use ethanol to wipe the skin before actually applying a topical agent if you're trying to deliver something with a systemic effect, for example. And that would aid absorption rather than... It does. Okay. So what about with regards to blood flow? Because it, it evaporates and you get a temperature loss. You do, although in terms of where you're going to see the benefit, the disruption of the hydrolipid film is going to play a much more significant role in improving the delivery and than I guess any more immediate, too, yeah. more immediate than any loss of initial local temperature, which can of course be overcome by manually rubbing in um, whatever you're applying at the simple. time. Simple, keep it simple. Mm-hmm. They're really good points, actually. And the more you speak about it, the more I think, well, you know, we already use this stuff for drug delivery, mm. and within realms of you know, the molecule size and active, passive transport, that sort of stuff. Mm. There seems a logical argument for, you know, delivery. I don't know about dose. That would be an interesting one. Mm. But, but um, you know, certainly local application. I mean, we've been doing it for decades. You know, CoQ10 in anti-aging creams. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's certainly in the field of cosmeceuticals. Mm. I think um, a lot more work has been done than in the field of sort of applying nutraceuticals in the same way. And I think partly because um, there hasn't been a huge need for it. Gastrointestinal delivery tends to work for most people. Uh, with advancements in technology, we're able to... Um, manufacture nutraceutical compounds now with chelators that have fantastic bioavailability that overcome any gastrointestinal uh, barriers that might cause upset. Um, but when it comes to skin, I think much of the work has been done on um, the really through the, the transcellular route through the stratum corneum. However, there is uh, the appendages to consider. So you've got the sweat glands and the sebaceous glands where you're actually going to have um, whatever you apply to the skin filtered down mm. through those mm. and straight into the dermis and also through the matrix layers via the intercellular route. And the pathways are not mutually exclusive either. But what I'm saying is I think there's a lot more understanding still to come with the way in which things For can sure. actually um, cross the skin barrier as well. I think it's interesting though. You'd you spoke about nutraceuticals, oh, sorry, um, cosmeceuticals. Mm. And there's even the use of herbs. Now, you know, 
let's face it, the cosmeceuticals agenda is for anti-aging. Mm-hmm. But when you think about it, let's talk about the application of cucumbers to the eyelids. Mm. Green tea. Green tea. Mm-hmm. A, a tea bag on the eye, a steak mm-hmm. on the eye for, mm-hmm. for bruising. <laughs> I don't know how good that works for bruising, but <laughs> but with regards to, you know, mild swelling and edema, mm. it's been used and yes. reused yes. and reused. It's an exciting and emerging field, and I think there is a lot more to come here. And I think as we... Um, move into certain conditions or into cases of polypharmacy or individuals who are particularly sensitive, Mm. Um, the trans-epidermal route is going to be one that I think is going to be really helpful for patients that find it difficult um, with taking anything orally. But you have to obviously know about, you've mentioned quite a few factors Mm. and they're they're reasonable factors to consider, Mm. especially things like skin types. Mm -hmm. You know, what's good for the gander might not be good for the goose. Correct. So you've got to be really quite cognizant of that patient in that particular point of time and with their particular genetics and makeup. Yeah, absolutely. What about safety issues then? The obvious one is burns, Mm -hmm. you know, but but you're not going to be treating somebody with burns. That's a burns unit issue. Correct. You know, in nursing, we've looked at this as an issue, Mm. um, not as an application, but as an issue. But what about in the clinic with with naturopaths? Mm. Do you find any safety concerns with nutraceuticals as opposed to pharmaceuticals? It does need to be put into context. When you consider pharmaceuticals, you have to understand you are introducing a foreign and synthetic agent into the body that has multiple consequences and considerations as far as elimination and metabolism and its Mm. um, pharmacological effects. If you are utilising vitamin C or vitamin A or magnesium or zinc, that is not in the same category as a pharmaceutical medication. However, all the same considerations as when you'd be orally administering those nutrients should be kept in mind. And so knowing that fat-soluble nutrient delivery will be, um, in most cases, more effective than water-soluble nutrient delivery, you need to consider the impact of accumulation. And in vitamin A, I think is probably the one to be most mindful of, especially if you are not giving zinc, which we know is critical for vitamin A transport, release from the liver and delivery to the tissues. And so I would simply treat them with the same respect as you would if you were delivering them orally, Mm. knowing that the risk is a lot lower, but is currently undetermined. Um, And in that way, you, you won't come unstuck. And so what I mean by that is if something is contraindicated in your patient to be delivered orally, I wouldn't therefore be applying it topically either. But I do make that distinction of, you know, even vitamin A, which we are a little bit paranoid about with regards to pregnancy. Mm. Um, and I will put the IVAG vitamin A paper in pregnancy mm. um, up on the FX Medicine website for our listeners. But I do make that distinction between vitamin A and tretinoin, which is Absolutely. not vitamin A, but a vitamin A analogue. It's a drug. Yes, sure. It works differently. Sure. It is. It is. That is an important distinction to make, certainly. Uh, but I guess another, another thing I would share in response to your question about safety is if, for example, someone has epilepsy and there are certain nutrients contraindicated oh. in that condition, I wouldn't go and apply them topically 
either um, because it is currently not known what that delivery is like and whether you may um, be putting them at risk. And I guess the other thing um, that I would just keep in mind is what the condition of their skin is like. Are they sensitive? Is it sensitized? Um, If they have dehydrated, dry or sensitive type skin, um, be very mindful about um, what excipients or delivery agents may be in what you're applying topically, as well as the potential for any of the actives to alter the condition of the skin and or be potentially irritating. Um, So like anything, I would recommend patch testing with a small dose first before applying something liberally um, because you can't take it back. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm thinking of applying B12 to my skin. Don't do that. Please don't. (laughs) (laughs) You'll stain not just your skin, but every part of your clothing as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So obviously there's inappropriate nutrients, you know, you wouldn't consider for absorption. And the obvious one there is B12 because it stains the hell out of things. Mm -mm. Curcumin. Despite the fact that I see curcumin face masks on yes. on uh, on YouTube, they are great if you like a Dorito glow. <laughs> <laughs> but I've worried about it. You like the 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 face masks on YouTube? They clean up seemingly quite they nicely. Do. Yeah, they do. I think that might be the base that it's in though. Is that right? Uh, yeah, it could be, and also how much you use, and also how well yeah how well you take it off. Um, that's that's for sure. But there are ways that you can improve its delivery. And I want to just um, throw out there an area that I think is going to be um, one to watch, and that is probiotic fermented ingredients. Hang on. I'm not aware of this. This is new. Please explain. Sure. So much has been elucidated around the benefits of probiotic bacteria and our commensal microorganisms. And Some of the things that we understand that they do for us is liberate compounds from the things we eat. I'm talking gastrointestinally here for a moment. Um, To give you an example, everyone knows dark chocolate is good for us. And that is because of the antioxidant or the polyphenol content. However, I think generally speaking, many people are not aware that we ourselves cannot, with our digestive secretions, liberate those antioxidants from the cocoa. It's actually our commensal microorganisms or bacteria in the gut that liberate those polyphenols, making them bioavailable for us to absorb and then utilize. And it's interesting that microbial fermentation is being used more and more um, to liberate metabolites from plant material. And what springs to mind right now is a study that I saw um, using resveratrol. Now, resveratrol is one of the key ingredients in red wine attributed to its the cardiovascular benefits and the longevity benefits um, that red wine has attached to it. And with resveratrol, gastrointestinally speaking, it's not particularly absorbable and applying it to the skin, it has no absorption whatsoever. However, when it is fermented with microbes themselves, the compounds are liberated, broken down and metabolized into a slurry, if you like, of phytonutrients that can cross the skin barrier. And I remember seeing the results of a half face study done on resveratrol back when I was formulating skincare more heavily. Mm. And it was like 
half their faces had had a facelift. Wow. It was extraordinary. Obviously, that's got to be a pre um, fermented thing, though. Correct. And yes, then controlled. Yes, yes, correct. So, so it's not a matter of putting an ingredient on your face and then putting some probiotics <laughs> on your face. Yeah, and just giving it a good <laughs> scrub and lying there. No, it is, um, but it is a way in which the actives themselves mm. are being made more of bioavailable. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so that with um, being mindful of effective delivery systems is going to be, I think, the next step in boosting transdermal absorption. Okay. So the obvious one to me is skin feel. Mm. And we've spoken a little bit about, you know, which ones would be inappropriate, like ones that would stain the skin. But there's mm -hmm. also greasiness and the, you know, you've mentioned the carriers. And so there's that skin feel. Yes. Are they exceptionally greasy? Can they be well absorbed and given the various factors that are going to influence absorption, how well? Like, can you put some of these nutrients on your skin and then walk, you know, put on a white shirt? Very good questions. And I think this is really um, the key sticking point when it comes to patient... Sticking. Sticking <laughs> point. <laughs> that was not an intentional pun, but I'll take it. Um, so w when it comes to patient compliance and ease of use and also enjoyment of use, this is uh, an important thing to consider. And what we know so far is that the liposomal forms of nutrients mm. are the... That's the most effective delivery vehicle. Yeah. Um, to get things into the skin and through the skin, actually. And it really depends on whether your liposomal formula has been designed for cosmetic use or nutraceutical use. And the size, obviously, I'm going to. Yeah, well, I guess that's, I guess, a side note, the quality of the liposomal mm. formula that you're looking at. We know that um, in terms of the liposome itself, the quality of the phosphatidylcholine that's used, any other things that enhance delivery and cellular retention is also key. Um, we also need to consider things like what are the particle sizes of the active ingredients that have been applied if you're using something um, herbal, for example. So all of the checklist that you would use to identify top quality liposomes for oral use, mm. I would apply equally to anything you're going to use topically. Um, what I will say, however, is if the liposome is a cosmeceutical that has been designed for cosmeceutical use, more thought has been put into adjusting that formula for skin feel. Right. And if you are an esthetician, like I am, you will have access to purchasing those. But if you are a functional medicine practitioner, chances are you're going to be looking at the range of oral liposomal products that you have at your fingertips for cosmetic use. And so if that's the case, I will suggest that simply applying them topically is not going to be enough to achieve optimal results in a timely manner mm. and also have the patient uh, look forward to using them on a regular basis. So I have some suggestions to not only improve their delivery but also improve their um, the, the joyfulness of using them. So first of all, knowing what we know about hydrated skin, being able to more readily absorb things, I would always suggest that people apply these after a warm shower or a bath. Or if you're using it as a, let's say, for example, an anti-aging facial treatment of an evening, apply it right after you've cleaned your face. 
And what you do want to do, or whatever part of the body you're applying this to, you want to leave the skin warm and damp. So after cleansing has been completed and after you've rinsed your skin, don't dry it off, leave it damp. This will allow a bit more slip so you can use less product to cover the same surface area as well as help boost the hydration of the skin. I would also suggest in warm, damp hands that you emulsify the product as well. So whether that's one pump or just a few drops, you want to rub your hands together again to um, really smooth that product out and allow for a better delivery so you're not getting a whole heap of product landing in one place and not enough in another. In some cases, I actually recommend that it is added to a serum or a moisturizer that they would ordinarily use as well and in that way be applied in one go. Um, Other suggestions would be to further enhance the delivery is use something that actually does reduce the hydrolipid film and reduce the stratum corneum. And that might be something like a gentle glycolic acid peel or, or an enzyme wipe at home. And I would certainly recommend that in the case of applying, say, vitamin A for acne patients. Um, and just actually take off that stratum corneum because they typically do have retention hyperkeratosis and a thickened skin barrier. And so delivery is already that much more, slightly more difficult. Um, Once the product has been applied, I would also be making the recommendation to massage it in well. So don't just wipe it on like a lotion or a serum and leave it to absorb in. Give yourself a facial massage or a, you know, a hand massage or really rub it into wherever you've applied the product. Um, Beyond that, let's say you've done this in the evening and you're at home or the patient's done it in the evening at home, if they can lie down with a warm, damp cloth on the area, that will really help the product sink in by encouraging the circulation and the heat and the expansion of the cells. Wouldn't get soaked up by the cloth? No, no, no. So you want to, you want the product damp so it's not going to absorb anything but not wet so it doesn't dilute anything Um, or even a warm compress of Mm. some sort Mm. or you know a hot water bottle or a wheat pack if you're using it on your leg for example for scar reduction Um, and then from there you can either leave it on overnight or for someone who who using acne as another example, whose skin might be prone to congestion, tissue off the excess before going to bed. If it has been applied to the face, I would recommend safety pinning a towel around the pillow or using an old pillowcase because the product will get onto the linen. You don't want any staining and you want to be able to take it off and just wash it in the morning. Um, Or if the product has been applied to another area, for example, vitamin C to reduce scarring and encourage wound healing, I'd be covering it with some sort of bandage overnight. Um, So much of the absorption is... The passive diffusion, I should say, is related to the extent with which the product is held against the skin. So by keeping it there undisturbed, you will encourage optimal absorption. You know, if you're going to apply with your hands to, let's say, your eyes, sure, that product is now on your hands as well. So you're going to get some absorption through the stratum corneum of your hands. If you're talking about decreasing, you know, the wastage of the product by pinning a safety towel to your pillow and Mm. the staining effects and things. Well, obviously the product is in that stain. Mm -hmm. So therefore you're getting product loss through that. 
I'm guessing here that the critical factor here is time to get a reasonable dose. Mm. Let's call that a Tmax. Yes. You know, in pharmacokinetic studies, we'd be looking at Tmax. Mm -hmm. So has any work been done on the appropriate time to deliver the a reasonable dose mm. via transdermal absorption? before you can wipe it off or get rid of the product or go to sleep? Yes, there has, but they typically the studies have been done on single things and mm. because there are so many variables, mm. um, particularly when it comes to skin type and how the skin's been prepared, it's difficult to give a single answer. From what I've read so far, 60 to 80 minutes seems to be the optimal window. Gotcha. So if you've come home after work and you're giving yourself a facial treatment and you're, say, using coenzyme Q10 for its anti-aging effects or alpha-lipoic acid and vitamin C for its skin polishing effects, I would probably be, you know, washing my face not too long after dinner and applying it not too dissimilarly to a face mask but I'd be leaving it on for an hour to an hour and a half. And if I was going to wash it off, it would be at that point I'd wash it off before heading to bed. Mm, gotcha. Yeah. Okay. But you, you mentioned earlier that it took, you know, 30 seconds odd to achieve this 60, 70% absorption. Why the difference between that and the 80 odd minutes that it takes for optimal absorption? Well, that's actually a myth that is currently being purported ah. you know, online and in the natural beauty community. And where it actually springs from is a 1984 study that looked at the absorption of volatile organic compounds absorbed through the skin um, that were present in drinking water, but the drinking water was actually applied to the skin. And what they found was anywhere between 29 to 91% of these volatile organic compounds mm -hmm. crossed the skin and were actually systemically absorbed. And on average, that was 64%. And so this one study has really been the basis for which uh, that claim is being made. Mis misappropriated. Yeah, it what is. That, that to me um, smacks of issues with paint, volatile organic compounds. The Certainly. VOC is a, like a measure of toxicity, if you like, of paint. Sure. And contaminants in this case in drinking water. And that's not to say the study should be disregarded. It certainly points to um, how permeable our skin can mm. be. And when you consider, you know, how many tens of thousands of toxins have been introduced since World War II, only 500 of them have ever been studied for safety. We do apply and shower in a chemical cocktail with very little regard to trans absorption. Unfortunately, wow. you cannot apply that study um, unilaterally no. and um, assume that anything we apply to the skin will be absorbed that readily. And particularly for a therapeutic benefit. Absolutely. Yeah. Why liposomes? What's so special about them? Liposomes are an incredible delivery system, not just because of their um, fatty nature. The liposomes themselves, in particular the um, phospholipid bilayer, utilise phosphatidylcholine, mimicking our own cell membrane structure, meaning they're able to fuse cellular speaking, cellularly speaking, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> Uh, with our skin and merge as one and deliver their payload, so to speak, very, very easily. And what 
the evidence shows is that liposomes and the nanoparticles contained within easily pass through the stratum corneum and intact. Intact, um, somewhat intact, not wholly intact, but through st- the stratum lucidum and the granulosum, delivering their nutrients into the stratum spinosum. So there's several layers or strata of yeah. the skin. And the stratum spinosum sits right on the basal layer, which is there at the dermal epidermal junction and therefore um, just above the circulation, the subcutaneous tissues. So it's going to provide an effect that will directly impact the health of the skin itself and in the event that you are attempting to deliver things systemically have the best chance without any other third-party intervention like um, dermabrasion or ultrasound being applied um, optimize the delivery of those nutrients across the skin this is really interesting amy so obviously there's a lot more research that needs to be done but it really opens up this new way of potential application yes in certain conditions yes and maybe we can get onto that at a later podcast when there's further research available. I would love to. I think this is a a very exciting and interesting area, not just um, with regards to improving delivery of nutraceuticals and herbal medicines, but perhaps with pharmaceutical interventions also, it's an opportunity to minimise some of the consequences of oral delivery. And I think... um, In addition to that, the understanding of the way in which our skin allows things through into our general system will also provide us with a framework with which to view anything else we apply, including ingredients and personal care products and the potential for the impact of those on our health as well. Well, I look forward to you joining us again in the studio and we can discuss this further, Amy. Thanks so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Andrew. It's been a pleasure. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Registrations are now open for the ACNIM conference to be held in Melbourne on the 5th and 6th of May 2018. Joining us today is Dr Christabel Yeo, President of ACNEM and Conference Chair. Welcome, Christabel. What can you tell us about the conference this year? Hi, Andrew. So this year our conference title is Health for Life, Mastering the Integrated Approach. And uh, our conference program is going to highlight three key areas of nutritional medicine practice, which is metabolism, gut immune access, and healthy aging. And of course, that's going to be covering a wide expanse of conditions and interventions. So what can you tell us about the various aspects of these? For instance, genes, gut, nutrition, and the environment, one of the subtitles. Well, you know, let me tell you a bit about um, the overall conference, because we've put this together, especially for practitioners who are dealing with patients who are not only worried about advancing age and declining cognition, but they also have multiple conditions and we know that all of this does overlap with the gut immune axis, metabolism, oxidative stress and and essentially healthy aging. So how do we work out their multiple and overlapping risks, triggers and perpetuating factors and then so ultimately how do we facilitate the optimum health comes in an integrated biomedical approach. So in these themes, what we are doing is um, under metabolism, we're going to be talking about um, fasting mimicking diets, uh, weight gain, 
um, mitochondrial disruption or metabolic disruption from heavy metals. And uh, under the gut immune um, axis, we'll be talking about the oral microbiome, hidden food factors in common gut conditions, things that people haven't particularly thought about. And uh, we'll also talk about the active role of um, specific food components on intestinal receptors and immunity. And so with healthy aging, um, we'll be talking quite a lot about genetic influences there, the, how we integrate um, genetics, nutritional and environmental approaches for healthy aging, as well as the metabolic aspects of uh, acidosis, and then also the mitochondrial aspects of how um, the mitochondrial immunity, chronic infection, is tied in with healthy aging. Who will be speaking this year? Oh, we're super excited this year because we have Dr. Robert Roundtree, who is a family medicine practitioner from Colorado and a well-known IFM faculty um, medical doctor, but really practicing like a naturopathic doctor like many of us nutritional medicine doctors. And from America, we also have Professor Walter Longo's lead researcher, Sebastian Branhoff, speaking about the fasting mimicking diet. And we have, of course, our local uh, favorite researchers like Professor Ross Grant, um, always talking about our topic, favorite topics like the brain and mitochondria. We've got Professor John Tagg from New Zealand, a microbiology researcher, giving us more depth on the oral microbiome. We've got Professor Joseph Proetto, an endocrinologist from Melbourne, talking about weight management. And then, of course, we really wanted to integrate having clinicians um, together with our amazing researchers and PhDs. So we have our local fan favorite um, naturopathic educator, Rachel Arthur. We have Denise Furness talking more about genetics. And um, on, the, on the last afternoon of the session, we really want to make it very practical and very clinically focused. So we have other clinicians like Warren McGinn, um, talking to us and Nicole Bilsma bringing in some of the environmental aspects. That's a, an incredibly impressive lineup you've got. How do people register for this? So to register for this event, go to conference.acnum.org.